Amen. Amen. Well, I, uh, I love what Chip said right there. I love uh, the Bordeaux family. They're a part of our Powdersville campus and, and they're doing some incredible things for the Lord. And, and uh, we're going to hear some more throughout this entire series from some men of God that are leaned in on the things of the Lord. So uh, how cool was that on all of our campuses just a moment ago to also be able to celebrate what God has done through us being able to partner with the church over in Poland to be able to bring some relief right there. Was that not awesome? Can we give the Lord a hand through that? I just want to say thank you for your partnership, church to be able to celebrate that. We'll keep you updated on that, but thank you all for your prayers for Austin and Vlad, uh, part of our, our Anderson campus and our Myrtle Beach campus. They were able to go and be a part of that. We'll keep you updated in the days ahead. Hey, if you got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open them up to Proverbs chapter 14. Let me tell you where I'm gonna go right here while you're opening your Bible. You can also open the app, but Proverbs 14, and then we'll go to Matthew 7, and then we're gonna go to 2 Corinthians 7, and then we're gonna finish in John 21. So for all you type A note takers, this is, takes one to know, one. I wanted to get you started right. So we're going to start in Proverbs 14. Then we're going to go to Matthew 7. Then we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 7. And then we'll finish in John chapter 21. And we're starting off today a five-week series on being a man of God. And it's gonna carry us from now until Easter. And then on Easter morning, by the way, we're kicking off a brand new series that'll uh, be all about Romans chapter eight. It's gonna be fantastic. The team's been planning it. But in the next five weeks, we're gonna really get around this idea of being a man of God. And, and last fall, we did a women's series. And so ladies, we got that taken care of then. You're gonna be encouraged during this time as well. But I just wanna ask you a question to get us started here at the beginning of this sermon. What is a man? And where do you go to find a man? Like if you didn't know anything and somebody said, I want to see a real man, where would you go to find a real man? Would you go to, uh, I don't know, perhaps you think of Maximus and you turn on Gladiator and you see Russell Crowe because that's a real man, right? Or uh, maybe it's Mel Gibson in Braveheart. That's a, that's a real man. I think there's a lot of people in the world right now that are leaning into the president of the Ukraine because it seems like he's putting forward some real leader man traits. And so where do you go and find a real man? And I just want to give you a handle so that all of us could be able to grab a hold of this together. Here's, here's what I want you to write down first is here's what we're going to start by looking for a kingdom man. A kingdom man, here's where we find a real man. A kingdom man is a God-designed and God-defined reality. We find a real man in the scriptures. The one who created manhood gets to talk to us about manhood. We don't have to lean into culture or the weight room or the locker room. We don't have to lean into what the, the business leaders think. We don't have to lean into what the college professors think. All those things may be true, but they're just an echo at best of God who created men. And here's another question that I've really been wrestling with as a pastor is if this is true, then we ought to have all kinds of real man, men filling up churches all over the world. But here's a really good question. How come when people are looking for real men, they don't think of, I'm going to go to church to find one? You feel that? A little bit of, little bit of silence there. Why is that true? And I think there's a lot of false perceptions of masculinity out there and manhood out there. But one of the things I, I just believe is on offer for us, New Spring Church, brothers, is that as we begin this series, we recognize that the potential of all the men of the 14 campuses that call New Spring Church home, those of you men that are leaned in, whether you're online or listening to a podcast here, is that if we all catch this and we step into the kind of God-defined, God-designed masculinity that we see in the scriptures, 
we're going to feel the effects of thousands of men all grabbing a hold of this rope at one time and pulling. And that's what I want for you. Sir, I want you to grab a hold of the rope and go for it. Young man, student in the room, I want you to grab a hold of the rope and go for it. Granddad's in the room, maybe you're retired. I want you to grab a hold of the rope and let's go for it. And so today what I wanna do before we get along in this content is I wanna give you a principle that's gonna help us be able to start in the same space. And this principle was shared with me um, a little over a decade ago, and it's known as the principle of the path. And here's, here's what the principle of the path is. Write this down. The principle of the path is just simply this. Direction, when it comes to being a kingdom man, direction and not intention will determine your destination. Would you, would you read that with me? The principle of the path, is, it says that direction and not intention will determine your destination. One more time on all of our campuses. Let's read that out loud. The principle of the path says that direction and not intention will determine your destination. Finish the sentence if you know it. Um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You see, we even understand this in the secular context is that we all have intentions. We all, we all have heart desires. And, and I think one of the things about being a man is I want to be a good man. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to be a, a good man in the community. But we've got to move beyond our intentions and we've got to start to really evaluate our decisions in terms of our direction. We've got to look down today and see where our feet are leading us, where our feet are leading us. Uh, here's, here's the second truth that I want to put before you when it comes to the principle of the path is just very simply this one. Becoming a kingdom man well, it's not a line we cross, but rather it's a path we walk. You're going to see in the scriptures, up and against the rest of society, that when the Bible talks about, when Jesus prompts us into being a kingdom man, brothers, he's not going to talk about manhood being a line we cross. Instead, he's going to talk about it being a path we walk. Why is that important? Well, that's important because maybe you're like me and you grew up in a locker room one time. And I remember being in the locker room one time as a 14-year-old. I was on the junior varsity football team. And I had never played football until the ninth grade year. I think I weighed like 118 pounds. And I remember coming in from summer workouts and some older guys. I could take you to the locker room at East Henderson High School and show you where this happened. And some of the older guys had been in the locker room before me and they knew that, that you know, I, I was a young guy and that, that perhaps I was not quite yet a man and they wanted to take it upon themselves to help me become a man. And so when I got back to my locker after one of our workouts, one of our lifts, somebody had laid a Playboy magazine wide open right there in my locker. And I was shocked because to me, that was something I had never at 14 seen before. And I remember the older guys saying, now you're a man because our society thinks that manhood is somehow a line we step across, not a path we walk. That becoming a man is the first time you see a naked woman. That becoming a man is the, the moment you lose your virginity. So come on, how many of you Southerners know that sometimes in the South we think that becoming a man is the first time you kill a deer, right? Uh, the, becoming a man is the first time you can bench press 135 pounds. Uh, that becoming a man is the first time that you can buy your own car. Becoming a man is once you get a college degree. Becoming a man is once you get married. Or becoming a man is once you have a kid or two. You see, the world wants to completely put men on a hamster wheel where there's a moving target and you never know where the end zone is because the world wants to suggest to you, sir, and to me, that becoming a man is a, is a line we cross, 
But the kingdom of God and the Bible speaks about becoming a man being a path we walk. It's actually something we do again and again and again as we follow the way of Christ. That's what manhood is, and that's what we're going to show you throughout the course of this series. That's why Proverbs 14, are you got your Bible there? You go open there. Proverbs 14, it says this in Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there's a path, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. One more time. King Solomon wrote this proverb and he says, hey, there's a way, there's a path that seems right to a man, but its way is, is the way to death. You see, in our world right now, there's a financial way that seems right to man. Its way ends in death. In our world right now, there's a way to date single men that seems right to a man, but its way, it ends in, in death. There's a way, listen to me, brothers, there's a way to do marriage that seems right to a man, but its way is the end in death. And so one of the things I believe the Lord wants us to recognize today is that the way that seems right to man is the path of least resistance. Would you write that down? The way that seems right to a man is the path of least resistance. It's a downhill path. It's the way that if you're just drifting today and you've not given any intentional thought to this ever in your life, then more than likely you're on this path, the way that seems right to a man. This principle can be applied. If you look out into the earth right now and you see everybody heading the same direction, more than likely they're heading down this path. If you look out into the earth today and you see everybody on social media walk in a certain direction, more than likely they're headed down this path. If you look into your high school students that are in the room, if you look into your high school and you see that there's a path that seems right to all the people in your high school and they're just drifting, it's downhill, it's the path of least resistance, more than likely it's this path. Hey, ladies in the room, if you look out at all the other ladies that are, that are around you, kind of your peers, and you kind of look around and you kind of take a, a, a little test of the wind, if you look out in the earth, is it not true that this path of least resistance it leads to destruction. And so here is what I want to make sure we catch. It's going to take an intentional decision to get on the path of becoming a kingdom man. One more time. You're going to have to make an intentional decision to get on the path to become a kingdom man because that path is not a downhill path. It's an uphill climb. It's an uphill climb and it's going to take intentional effort to get on this path. But I want you to know that there's good news. Jesus has already pioneered the way for us. And all we've got to do is follow him. As, as we follow him, you're going to make it. There is incredible hope. I was actually talking to a friend of mine today at our Green, or this week at our Greenville campus. And we were talking about this series. And we were just talking about how much potential is in this series. He's a business owner in Greenville. He's a dad. He's actually a granddad. And uh, one of the things that he was saying, and I just felt so encouraged by it, that is so true, is men, if you want to know what the tone of this series is going to be, it's going to be far less God putting his finger in your chest and saying, come on. And it's going to feel far more God putting his arm around your shoulder and say, I'll show you the way. Come follow me. This series and the scriptures and the way Jesus talks to men, he doesn't, he doesn't put his finger in your chest and tell you, you don't have what it takes. You need to prove yourself. That's not the tone of our Lord. The tone of our Lord is, I know you don't have what it takes. That's why I made a way for you. Why don't you come and follow me and I'll show you the way. Isn't that good news today? But you got to recognize that there's a path that seems right to men. That path ends in death. That's what Jesus actually articulated in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, I believe that when Jesus was talking about this path, he was literally holding this proverb in his mind while he unpackaged this truth in the Sermon on the Mount. He looks at the crowd there that day and he says, hey, there's a path that you can enter by a narrow gate 
for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to where, church? The gate is wide, and, or excuse me, the, the way is wide and the way is easy that leads to where? Destruction. Whoop. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it, well, they're few. I want you to see this today. Jesus would look out at that crowd and he would say, gosh, it's a downhill path. It's wide and it's easy. And if you just go the way of your drifting or go the way of the world or go the way of culture, you're going to find yourself on a path that leads to destruction. But, but recognize there's another way. There's a, there's a way that's narrow. It is the hard way, but it leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, let me ask a question. If I was to hand out a piece of paper on all of our campuses today, okay, all 14 of them, or maybe even you guys that are at the house watching online, and I was to ask you a yes or no question, just a pop quiz, and I was to ask you very simply, circle yes or no, do you believe in Jesus, question mark, circle yes or no. This is not rhetorical on all of our campuses. How many of you, honestly, do you believe in Jesus, circle yes or circle no? How many of you on all of our campuses, show of hands, would circle yes, I believe in Jesus? Yeah, 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 balcony, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 hands down. I'm not gonna ask how many of you would say no, that's fine, glad you're here. Um, but here's what I wanna, I wanna make a point right here. If we passed out that same sheet of paper to Lucifer, Satan, and all of his demons, they would all circle yes also. They would. How many of you demons believe in Jesus? They'd be like, mm, oh, yes, I believe in him. That's my demon voice. That's the best I got. I don't know if they're like cute like that. That was kind of a cute demon voice. Uh, you know, like screw tape letters, like C.S. Lewis. Anyway, stay with me right here, okay? How many of you believe in Jesus? The, the demons, all of the demons of hell would circle yes. So I want to just make this point, okay? This is so important. So many of us like Satan, it's not a bad thing to believe in Jesus. We assent in our minds. But the, the truth is, the demons of hell, they, they believe in Jesus. They just don't trust what Jesus says. So what I want to try to encourage us to do today, men, brothers, sisters, I want us to trust what he says. It's not enough just to circle, yes, I believe in Jesus. We've got to say, what? Jesus said, what? He said that there's a path that's easy. And it's downhill and it leads to destruction. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hear those words and I'm going to make some decisions because I trust Jesus. I don't just believe in him here. I trust him with my life. And I'm going to make some decisions to get on the path that leads to life. That's what we want to do over the next five weeks is help you get on a path that leads to life. And that means that there's not just a principle of a path, but there's actually, watch this, there's actually power on the path. And here's the power on the path. You ready? Power on the path is determined by our decisions. Every single time you and I make a decision, we have the opportunity to change something. God has given us the grace of changing our minds. He's given us the opportunity. We'll do this 10,000 times in our life. And if you're a lady, you might do it 20,000 times. You'll change your mind. Okay, that was a joke. Sorry, it didn't land. Y'all know it's true. Okay, I married one of y'all. I know how this works. Where do you want to go eat? Let's go here. Okay, I don't really want that. Anyway, back here. Don't lose me. There is power in decisions. And so the hope is if you've had 30 years of blowing it and you're feeling maybe, man, I don't know if this series is going to be for me. I want you to know that you are one decision away from getting back on the path that could change everything 
And if you would just make the decision to listen to the words of Jesus and recognize where you are, and maybe he's even quickened your heart today to go, I've been walking a path that just seemed right to me, or it seemed right to the guys around me, or it seemed right to my girlfriend, or it seemed right from, this is what my daddy did, or my granddaddy did, it just seemed right to me. But I'm recognizing today that that's not a path of life. I want to follow Jesus onto a different path. And so over the next five weeks, let me tell you what we're going to be doing. We're going to open up the scriptures. We're going to look at two different examples of men that walk two different paths. And you're going to get a chance to trust what Jesus said. To begin to recognize in your life, I want to be on the path that leads to life. And so I'm going to, I'm going to make some decisions that are going to determine my destination. Because I know that good intentions won't get me there. Good intentions aren't going aren't to make it happen. It's going to be my decisions that get me into a direction that ultimately leads me to my destination. And so this week, we're going to look at two men. And those two men, if you want to write these two men down, we're going to look at two men that handled something very differently and it made all the difference. The two men that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at Peter and we're going to look at Judas. And we're going to look at the way they handled the path. And when they came... Along a fork in the road, they actually chose completely opposite directions and it made all the difference in the world. And maybe you already know what the fork in the road is. And this, this thing that we're going to talk about today, the reason that I'm going to talk about it is because over my ministry life, I don't think that there's any one thing that I've seen derail more men than the subject I'm going to talk about for the rest of this sermon. This one thing I think gets more men off of the path of life than anything else. You're going to deal with making this decision this week, sir. Brothers, look at me in my eyes, please. Over the next year, you're probably going to deal with this fork in the road a thousand times. Over the rest of your life, 10,000 times. You're going to come to this moment, this moment of decision, and you're going to have to decide, am I going to go the way that seems right to a man that ends in death? Or am I going to, am I going to take control of this moment, make a decision, and choose a path to follow Jesus, a path of life? And that, that thing that you're going to have to decide over and over again, that thing that you'll probably end up deciding this week, that thing that you might even have to decide by, by lunchtime today, that thing you're going to have to decide is, you're going to have to answer this question, you're going to have to decide, what are you going to do with guilt? What are you going to do with guilt? What are you going to do when you make a mistake? This is such a big deal, right? I mean, can we just be real at church today? So many of us, we, we want to act like we don't make mistakes. Guilty as charged. We want to act like that we've not made a mistake or we've blown it before, but the truth is, the good news of the scripture is, everybody you see on your campus has blown it. Every single one of us. The good news of the gospel is, all of us have blown it. There's been one perfect example. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's saying, hey, it's okay, I've paid the price for your sin and your guilt, but we've got to decide every single day, 10,000 times in our life, what are we going to do when we get the weight of guilt? Now, Anybody like watching these powerlifting uh, ESPN shows? Maybe you like watching CrossFit or The World's Strongest Man. Anybody do this? Anybody watch these things? I love watching. I can't not watch it. These people are picking up all the weights or they're lifting all these rocks or they're throwing things over their head, like they're throwing these big beer kegs over their head. And it's like, gosh, that guy's huge. But one of the things that you'll see when you watch these strongman competitions, they have this picture. Have you guys seen the picture? It's the picture of a man and he's holding something. What's he holding over his head? Anybody know? He's holding the globe. He's holding the world. Yeah, he's holding the world over him. Uh, that actually is a man named Atlas. And Atlas has got the weight of the world on his shoulders. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. You see, what guilt is, guilt is one, 
more weight after another until ultimately, men, this is us. We've got the weight of the world on our shoulders. We've got the mistakes of our past and the, and the stresses of our present. And we've got the unexpected unknowns of the future. And we've got the weight of the world on our shoulders. And if we don't learn how to handle guilt, it's going to break us down. And it's going to chew us up. And it's going to spit us out. And that's exactly what happened. And we got to see the test right there in the scriptures between Peter and Judas. Now, let me, let me get us up to speed on them. Many of you, you don't even have to grow up in church to know who Judas is. What did Judas do, church? What did Judas do, Anderson Campus? Judas was known as the who? Judas the betrayer. Yeah. Every time you hear Judas mentioned in the scriptures, you find in parentheses or right there beside his name, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas, the betrayer. Judas was known as a betrayer. As a matter of fact, on all of our campuses today, there's nobody on any campus that has the name Judas, not even a middle name, okay? Your granddaddy wasn't even named Judas. They didn't put it in your name, okay? No Judases, okay? If you meet one, let me know. That would be the weirdest thing. You can Instagram me later. I would be completely surprised. Do you know why that is? Because Judas, he blew it. He blew it. Um, and so Judas' story is he was, he was a trusted disciple of Jesus. He followed Christ for three and a half years. Judas was there. He was there when he saw Jesus multiply the fish and loaves and feed 5,000 families. He was, he was there when, when Jesus told that man that was laying there, the paralytic, that, hey, your sins are forgiven. And when all the Pharisees were like, you can forgive sins, he said, do you think it's easier to do that or to do this? Hey, please get up your mat and walk. And, and the paralytic stood up and walked right out of the room. Judas was there. Judas was there when he yelled to Lazarus, who was in the grave for four days. He said, Lazarus, come out. Judas saw that. Judas knew and he believed in Jesus in his mind. He just, listened to me, he didn't trust Jesus with his heart. And at the end of his life, Judas ended up being the one who betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders. The scriptures tell us that he did it for 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of purchasing an individual back then. He actually betrayed Jesus. And then in the secret, he would end up being the one that would lead the, the guards to where Jesus was in the dark of night. And then he comes up to Jesus and he betrays him specifically with a kiss. You remember the story? And he kisses Jesus and the guards take him and they, they take him and arrest him. They hit him, they beat him, they put a, a trial forward and then they find ultimately Jesus guilty. Now listen, something crazy happens because when all of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, declared Jesus was guilty, Judas changed his mind. Did you know that? It's recorded in Matthew 27. It says he changed his mind. He, he had a change of heart. He, he was under, I believe, the weight of guilt. But something happens right here as he, as he changes his mind. He doesn't take his guilt to the right place. The scripture records that he takes his guilt and he goes back to the religious leaders. And he says, I don't want this money anymore. And he tries to give him back the money for the, the freedom of Christ. And they said, we don't want your blood money. And he throws the money down in the temple and he goes and he kills himself. He commits suicide. And so we see these words that we see, hard words, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its way ends in death. That's the path that Judas took. He, he exchanged Jesus for money. He exchanged Jesus when he dealt with his grief. He tried to take it to religion and he could not find any way to get out from under the weight of his guilt. He didn't know what to do. Now, transversely, we're going to see Peter do something completely different. But before we even get there, I want to show you that this is in the scriptures. 
this fork in the road on whether we decide with guilt on our shoulders to walk a path that leads to destruction or walk a path that leads to life. It's in the book of 2 Corinthians 7. Look right here. Look what Paul writes to the church in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now let me just pause right there. I want you to think about these words. Read them with me again. Godly grief, okay, okay, I've got godly grief. It produces a repentance, a changing of my mind that leads to salvation, and that salvation is gonna have no regrets, right? Everybody, you see the, the meme in your head, no ragrats, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about today? New Spring Church, y'all know what I'm talking about. No ragrats. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But look what, what it also says, whereas worldly grief produces Death. Now, I just want to point something out here. There are two kinds of ways, two paths to choose when it comes to guilt and grief. And we're going to do this 10,000 times in our life, but the promise is if we, if we allow it to change our minds, it's going to lead us a certain direction, and that direction is going to lead us to a life without regret. Now think about this for just a moment. I got to preach right here for a minute. You're looking at me? Men, what if, what if, I know the pen just fell behind me. Okay, what if you could live your life and make all the mistakes you're going to make. You're going to have to say, I'm sorry, 10,000 times and ask for forgiveness 10,000 times, but you're going to get to the end of your life, the end of your career, the end of your marriage, the end of raising your kids and your grandkids, and it would be said of you that you had no regrets. Would that not be awesome? Like a regret-free life where you don't have regret? That's what's on offer here. But then there's also this other truth that we've got to wrestle with. There's, there is a worldly grief. There's a worldly grief just like Judas had where he said, I'm sorry. He might have even felt bad. He might have even shed some tears. You know he had to cry, but that's not enough. I just want to say to you, sir, it's not enough to say, my bad, I'm sorry. That's not enough. You can't just say, my fault, I messed up. There's, a, there's somewhere you've got to take your guilt. There's some way to take your guilt that changes everything, and it's what Peter does. So ultimately, Peter... Uh, he actually makes more mistakes than Judas in the, in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, I've actually been reading a, a teacher on this, and one of the reasons that the Bible all the time makes sure that Judas is described as the betrayer is because to a first century reader, they would not have thought Judas was the betrayer. They would have actually thought Peter was the betrayer. So one of the reasons that in the scriptures they do a great job of naming Judas as the betrayer is because if you would have just been reading it or hearing the story about Peter and how he followed Jesus and denied him three times, you would have thought Peter was the betrayer. And so Peter, three times the last week of his life, denies Christ. He denies him. You remember he was, he was arrested. Jesus was arrested. And Peter pulls out his sword and he tries to cut off that man's ear. And Jesus says, no, Peter, that's not how we're going to do it. They take Jesus ultimately in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the ruling bodies. And while he's there standing trial, we find Peter outside warming his hands over a coal fire. And a little girl says, hey, aren't you one of his friends? Like I can just imagine like a little 11-year-old girl. Aren't you one of his friends? Don't you know him? I hear your accent. It sounds like you're from Galilee. And what does Peter do? Peter says, no, I never, I never knew him. I never knew him. I don't know him. Denies him. He denies him again to another man, and then ultimately he denies him a third time. And, and that third time, actually, a rooster crows, just like Jesus told him it would. And the scriptures actually tell us that Jesus and Peter connected eyes in that moment of denial. Can you imagine the weight 
of a disciple of Jesus or a disciple denying the rabbi like that, denying them in their greatest moment of need, can you imagine the weight that Peter would have been under once Jesus was crucified and once the entire movement seemed like it had hit a complete and utter brick wall and a stop? He would have had all kinds of weight. And what's he going to do with this weight? Is he going to, is he going to let it lead to worldly grief that leads to death? Or is he going to, is he going to allow this, this weight to take a different path? And John chapter 21 is where we're going to finish our time this morning. John chapter 21, the entire chapter is fantastic. You should go and read it maybe this week in your quiet time or maybe even this afternoon. The Bible records that Jesus, after he ascends and he shows himself to be resurrected in power, that he tells his disciples that he's going to meet with them up in Galilee again, and so they go there. But we never see Jesus and Peter have a one-on-one. They've, they've got an awkward kind of thing that's between them during these, these days because Peter knows what he's done, the weight of his guilt, and Jesus knows what he's done, and Peter wants to know what his standing is going to be. Is Jesus going to even welcome him back? And so John 21 records that while the disciples were out fishing all night together, that um, some stranger walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee calls out to them uh, like he's seen some fish on the other side of the boat. And he says, hey, cast your net on the other side. And these disciples, the Bible says, they've been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything, but they see the stranger. And so they pick their net up, they throw it to the other side. And when they do, they, they bring in such a big haul. You know what happens? The, the, the fish were so heavy that it starts to sink the boat. Like it was so heavy. And, and John, one of the other disciples, turns to Peter and goes, hey, I think that's the Lord. I think that's Jesus. That's what's recorded in John chapter 21. Y'all check this out. Here's what it says. It says in John 21, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore says to Peter, it's the Lord. And watch what Simon Peter does. When he heard this, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He's like a, a Southern man. He's fishing with his shirt off. He put on his outer garment for he had stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea and he swims to the shore. And the Bible says that Jesus was waiting there. Watch this. He was waiting there over a fire made of coals and he was cooking fish for breakfast. Now this is so cool. And I don't have time to get into all this, but you know that the word coals is only used two times in the New Testament, two times. And both of them have to do with Peter. The first time coals is used is when Peter was warming himself around that coal barrel the night he denied Jesus. And the second time that Peter was over a fire of coals was when Jesus, right here in this moment in John 21, forgives him three times. Isn't that cool? I love the Bible. And so he gets there to that fire of coals and he eats breakfast with Jesus. And then Jesus, he takes his guilt to him. Jesus does something incredible. Let's see what he does. He's, he says this in, in John 21, verse 15. He says, when they had finished breakfast over those coals, Jesus said to Simon Peter, hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know if he's talking about the fish. Maybe, do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than being a fisherman? Or do you love me more than these other disciples? We don't know, but listen to what Peter says. He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you more than my career, more, more than the other brothers. I love you the most. You're my priority. Then Jesus says, well, feed my lambs. Then he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, well, then tend my sheep. And you can feel Peter getting a little bit frustrated. Like I told you, I loved you. Watch this. And then he says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. I'm underneath the weight of guilt. Why? Why is he grieved? Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And Simon says to him, 
He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, well, feed my sheep. Here's the whole point, okay? Many of you know this. How many times did Peter deny Jesus the night he was crucified? How many times? Three. How many times did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him right here on the seashore? How many times? Three. He's making sure that Peter knows, bring your guilt to me and I'll cover it every time. And if he had denied him four times, how many times y'all think Jesus would have asked him if he loved him? Yeah, four times. Five times, five times. A hundred times, a hundred times. The point is this, being a man of God is not a line you cross, it's a path we walk. And we've got to realize that every single time we mess up and we blow it, we've we have got guilt that we've got to come back to Christ and we've got to answer the question. He loves you, do you love him? Do you recognize that he has paid for that? He's paid for all your sin, past, present, and future, and you've got an opportunity to come to him today and say, Lord, I don't want to carry this anymore. Will you forgive me? And guess what he's going to tell you, church, friends? He's going to tell you, yes, I do. I forgive you. I I forgave you then, and I forgive you now. Don't die under the weight of your guilt. Now, I know that this is the Bible, but I just want you to know that this is is something I've lived 10,000 times. And... um, I can remember growing up, and um, my dad's actually sitting right over here in this service, and, and I told this story at the first service, Dad. I don't know if you've already heard about it, but I've, I've just been blessed, y'all. I've got great parents. They love the Lord. They've raised me in church. Not perfect people. They'll tell you they're not perfect people. But I feel like there was so many things that mom and dad modeled for me well, and there's, there's two things that I really will look at my dad specifically, and, and for the rest of my life, I will remember my dad for. One of those is just his generosity. Dad, you've always been really generous, and it's marked me. But the other thing that I want to tell you about is I will never forget riding in the back of a Bronco 2. Anybody know about a Bronco 2? They don't make them anymore because they flip over too easy. Uh, They made the new Broncos. They're cool and everything. But Dad used to drive a Bronco 2. And I can remember one day, I could take you to the place in the road back in North Carolina where it happened. I don't remember the scenario of Dad losing his temper but he had lost his temper. He had, he had yelled about something. He might have even said a word we don't say at church. I don't remember exactly. He said something, and it was a big deal. And we're on the way home, and we're on Finley Cove Road. And while we're driving, Dad turns around while he's driving, and he looks at me in the back seat. I must have been five, six, seven, somewhere like that. He says, son, I'm sorry, and I need to ask your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And I remember that just blowing my mind that my dad, who was... My dad, you know, he's, he's my strong dad. He's, he's a hero to you. When you're a kid, you look up to your dad like that, and my dad's asking me, I'm six, to forgive him? Wow. But I'll never forget it, church. It's marked me. And it's a powerful thing for a big, strong man to understand that they have been forgiven in Christ, and the only way they can ask anyone else in their life to forgive them is if they understood that they, too, had been forgiven. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Because now I'm a dad, and I drive my kids to school every single day, by and large. I love taking my daughters. They're in second grade, and they're in kindergarten. I take them to school. We leave the house, and, and if we got time, we're, we're, we're driving, and we're, we sing in the car. We, we talk in the car. We laugh in the car. It's a blast. It takes us about 10, 11 minutes to get to their school. And the other week, like three weeks ago, we're driving to school, and I'm talking to my girls My oldest, Campbell, she's eight, and she's just like her daddy, y'all. Pray for her. She talks too much. Y'all understand. 
Um, and, uh, and she's a firstborn, and so she's really quick, and she wants to answer everything, right? So I'm asking them questions. I'm trying to teach them things. And, and Campbell, before I even get the question out of my mouth, she knows the answer. She knows the answer. She knows the answer. And so what do you do when you're a parent and you've got one of these kind of kids? You tell that child, all right, Campbell, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to let your little sister answer the next one, okay? So Campbell, I want you to let your little sister answer this next question. And then, and then I ask the question. And as I ask the question, I turn back around and I can hear Campbell in the back seat tell her little sister the answer. The answer was generous. That was the answer. And she goes, generous, like this. And y'all, I don't know why it got all over me, but it got all over me. I had just taken the time to ask her to not answer for her little sister. And I want to make sure that her little sister gets a chance to, to learn and answer too. I want her to have confidence that she doesn't have to wait on her big sister because her big sister's not always going to be there to have all the questions answered. And so I'm, I'm raising my voice and I'm trying to drive and stay on the road and turning around and I'm telling Campbell how much I want her to be better. And, and if she would just listen to me, aren't you, did I, you not hear me say that this is something you should do? And please don't, and, and I'm going so hard. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Dad's. I'm going in and I see my daughter's countenance just drop. And you know what I think in my head? Good, she's getting the point. Okay, and I'm going in. I'm, <laughs> her bottom lip starts quivering. I'm going, good, she's, she knows what I'm saying is right. She starts to have her eyes fill up with tears. I'm like, great, she needs to feel this. She needs to be better at being a big sister. And then I get done, I say, okay. And then as soon as I kind of have my moment, my volcanic blah moment, and I'm telling myself, it's, I'm glad she needs to cry. She needs to feel this one. She says from the back seat, Daddy, I didn't tell her the answer. I was, just, I was just telling her what it started with. It started with the letter G. And I turn around and I just do this. And y'all, and then I'm starting to think, oh my Lord, what kind of dad am I? What a jerk. What a, what, who do I, what am I doing? I'm going to have those preacher kids. They're, that's why people have PKs is because of preachers like me. I mess them up and I'm talking to the Lord. And, and, then I, and then I had this moment where I remembered my dad. My dad just stopping and saying this simple phrase that I'll never forget in my five and six-year-old mind. Hey, will you forgive me? And it was right there that I turn around and I tell my daughters, I say, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Daddies need forgiveness too. And you know how quick they forgave me, y'all? Just so quick. That's why Jesus is here, Daddy. My kids are preaching at the preacher now. That's why Jesus is here. He's forgiven you. You're fine, Dad. We love you. And I love you. And, I'm just, and now I was worried about my daughters getting out of the car crying on the way to school. And I'm crying as I'm dropping them off. You know, I'm just all emotional. But here's the truth of the matter, friends. We've got to, dads, husbands, brothers, single men, you're going you're gonna to be on these paths for the rest of your life. And you've got to understand that manhood is not a moment where you arrive because you step across a line. It is one of these things that you choose to walk out every single day with every single decision and you're gonna have to make the decision, what are you gonna do with the weight of your guilt when you blow it and we're gonna blow it? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna opt like Judas to try to solve it with religion? Are you gonna opt like Judas to, to try to trade it in with philanthropic endeavors and just throw money at it? Those things won't solve it, friends. 
Only Jesus Christ can solve our guilt. And he's standing here today with his arms open saying, I forgive you. And we've got to do just like Peter. We've got to shorten the distance from the boat to the bank. We've got, we got to get from the boat and get to Christ. We need to take our guilt and just lay it down. And he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And that, friends, is the path of a man of God. It's not being perfect, but it's knowing where you take your guilt every single time we take it to Christ. And that's what Peter did. And you can just imagine Jesus with his arm around him right there around that fire saying, I love you. And he took his guilt and you know what he did? Jesus begins to tell him about who he is. He, he said, I'm the one who designed you and I'm the one who defined you. And he starts with Peter in John 21, the same place he started three and a half years early. Would you be willing today to come and follow me? That's the question you gotta answer. Would you be willing to make the decision to come and follow him? Just bring your guilt to Christ. 10,000 times, just bring your guilt to Christ and he will define you and he'll design your life as you walk the path of being a kingdom man. Would you stand to your feet on all of our campuses and we're gonna respond. Our worship teams are gonna come. We're gonna sing a song, I Have Decided. And I hope this song encourages you to make the decision, pre-decide, Maybe even in this moment, you need to decide. You've, you're still standing under the weight of your guilt. You can decide right now. Lord, I lay it down. I take up your, your, your life and I wanna follow you. Or maybe you decided that 20 years ago, but you've been walking with the sin and shame of your college years, the, the weight of your first marriage, the weight of something you did to a business partner, the weight you, of something you did to your wife or a friend, the weight of that abortion that no one knows about, the weight of whatever it is. I just want you to know God has so much forgiveness and grace but don't walk with your guilt and take it anywhere else. That's the path that seems right to man that ends in death. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we thank you that daddies need forgiveness too. We thank you that every single one of these men that are here today, all of my brothers, they're not perfect men. They're broken men that need a savior, that need a that need a big brother to lead the way. And Jesus Christ, you have done that. You have defeated guilt and all the weight that it would try to crush us with. And so, Lord, I pray for men across the state of South Carolina today to walk in the cascade of forgiveness that's on offer for us in Christ. And that, Lord, because we have been forgiven, Lord, would you make us the kind of men that go and forgive? I just feel like I need to encourage you, brothers, some of you, you need to go and forgive her. This week, you need to write a letter and you need to tell him you forgive him. You need, to, you need to call your son and say, I forgive you. You need to call your old business partner and say, it's done. I've been forgiven, I forgive you. What if thousands of men just started to lavish forgiveness on the state of South Carolina? It would change the world. You gotta understand the gospel meets the demands of reality. And forgiveness is something our entire planet needs right now. And it is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And the only way we can give and extend forgiveness is if we get under it ourselves. So you got to decide what you're going to do with your guilt right here and right now and for the rest of your life. And so, Father God, as we worship you and we sing and we praise you for, for the truth of what we've just heard, would you help us to make a decision to not stand for long under the weight of our guilt anymore? that as soon as it tries to jump on our backs, would we, Lord, bring it to you? Say, I'm sorry, yes, but more importantly, would we ask for your forgiveness, trusting that you did it for Peter three times and you'll do it for us 3,000 times. We love you, Lord, and we've decided to follow you. And there is no turning back. 
Thank you for showing us the path of what it means to be a man of God. Be honored now. Amen.